Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Errol Alcan, an artist who spent the past 20 years showing that dance music and guitar music are not so different after all. This perspective makes Errol a really fascinating guy to talk to. He's deeply embedded in the club scene and has been for a long time, but he also produces records for big bands like Ride and Mystery Jets. Errol forged his musical identity back in the early 2000s at his cult party Trash. If you speak to the people who went to these wild Monday night sessions down at the end in London, they'll probably tell you that these were some of the best nights of their lives. So we of course talked a lot about Trash as well as some of the other touchstones like Bugged Out, Fantasy Sound and Errol's remixes that have made him one of UK music's most influential recent figures. major project you have on the horizon is Reworks Volume 1. Uh, this is a two CD collection of some of your uh, remix work from down the years. Um, I think in your case, this feels very significant because you're somebody who's, you know, in part built their name through their remix work. So I wanted to ask firstly, uh, what it was that originally drew you to the idea of a remix? I've always been a fan of the 12 inch versions of of music in general I suppose it came from um from my early love of pop music and going to record shop and asking for uh I think it might have actually been I think the first I always I can never quite figure out what the first 12 inch I bought was if it was either the reflex by Duran Duran or you spin me right round by dead or alive and um I remember going in and asking for it and they asked me if I wanted the seven inch or the 12 inch version and I didn't know the difference, so I asked them, and they said, "Oh, the twelve-inch one's longer, and you know, it's a bit, it's a bit better." So I was like, "Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one." It wasn't that much price difference. I think, I think twelve inches is about three ninety-nine back then, or maybe even less. Seven-inch, twelve-inch prices weren't weren't that that kind of different. I'll have to really try and remember which one it was that I bought first. But let's say, for instance, it was it was the murder mix of "You Spin Me Right Round." You know, hearing it in a much more dynamic form and more kind of with more peaks and troughs and movement than I would have been aware of, of like the seven inch version that I was hearing on the radio all the time. Definitely that, you know, it, it definitely piqued my interest and caught my imagination. 
Yeah, so I would have listened to that endlessly, that record. I mean, I'm, I'm in love with, you know, the three and a half minute pop song, you know, whatever genre you look at that, you know, that compact, just pure music. Um, but I love, I love it when it's kind of has more of a kind of a dialogue in that sense, you know, stretched out eight, nine minutes. And, and I suppose, I don't know if it's even, I, I need to attribute it to my, to my kind of love of club music as well, you know, kind of like cross-reference it with that. I don't think it's even that. I, I just, I just kind of like the kind of story that it can tell across, across more time. I know I used to, I used to try to make my own extended versions on, on an old cassette on the old Amstrad cassettes where you had the two cassette players and you could kind of rewind it, pause it right on the beat and then unpause them at the same time. You could you could literally do like tape edits on well there were tape edits I suppose, but on ferret cassette rather than rather than, you know, quarter inch tape. Just pull it um, off. Yeah. Yeah, completely, yeah. Yeah. It was I've I've still got them somewhere at home as well. You know, you just do things, you just loop bits that you liked. You know? Do you, um, remember, do you remember any of the ones that you did? I think there was something I did rubble without a pause just because that was one that was one record which jumped out at me where it was like that's a loop. You know, it just goes round and round and round and round and round. And I think there might have been a few phrases in that. Like the, I wanted to make the vocal phrase go round along with the with the, I should try and see if I I've I've got loads of tapes from music I made when I was like fourteen, you know, on an Amiga with a digitizer, um, sampling, you know things from the radio thought about putting it out <laughs> <laughs> no 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 um no it's quite interesting actually some of it you know you listen to it and because it's so you know so strange it, it's not it doesn't you know it doesn't kind of adhere to any kind of i don't know it's because it's so bizarre it's sort of it's like uh, a transmission from the yeah, past or something it, exactly it doesn't you know you kind of like it's neither good nor bad it's just kind of what it is really but um but i've you know i've always been I've always been intrigued by, by those you know longer moments of those records that I that I loved. So I did you? Um, I was wondering, did you or did you look for any of these qualities in the bands that you were listening to, or do you think any of the bands that you were into back then kind of uh, embodied these qualities? This may be also another obvious one, but I remember from a bit later hearing I was really into you know Duran Duran, and they would make the night versions of of their pop singles, the longer club ones, which, but then again, that was also, that was more versions that were replayed by the band and often sometimes changing part of the arrangement of the original version that, that, you know, that we all knew, you know, there were, yeah, there's probably a few bands that you kind of like felt were aware of, of the concept of the extended version. Um, so just to clarify, um, you know, I, I don't know myself and I imagine uh, the same would be the case for others. Uh, with these versions, was it the, um, you know, the aim of the record label just to get these things played in clubs? You know, were they thinking about DJs predominantly with these versions? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I definitely think so. So this is an, another thing. I think the mixes sounded punchier on on these 12-inch versions. You know, they certainly kind of, they didn't sound as kind of overall kind of compressed as like a pop pop track would for the radio. They I just sounded the aims are slightly different. Yeah, exactly. That 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 love for like the concept of of the twelve inch record kind of extended into 
my life, you know, like getting into dance music in general around in the late 90s. And I suppose when it came round to being asked to work with other people's music, that was the initial, it was my, my initial and probably my only approach at that point would have been to take what was there and what I loved about it and just make it last longer. And I suppose, I suppose it's maybe more in a, in a way to kind of dominate the amount of time that a piece of music can exist on a dance floor. Would you say that this almost runs counter to the way that you would approach a remix these days? I mean, um, I'd read some accompanying notes with the um, with the compilation where it made the point that you're very fond of, or you know, a aim of yours is to almost reimagine the piece of music from the ground up. Yeah. Um, you know, was there a, a shift over the years? I guess is what I'm saying. And, and would that still be accurate for you know how you approach a remix these days? I think the thing about Imagining if I was there with the band is probably more to do with the fact that I try to use a lot of the parts that a band would would have kind of you know written themselves, or if they were there, they would they would play in. I mean, I want to kind of capture as much of the character and the spirit that of the band to keep the concept of the band in there. I think that's another thing that's that was quite prominent. It, it, in that golden era of the 12 inch single, you know, around in the eighties and stuff. You know, I mean, one remix or rework that I really, really love it, it, it is by Francois Kavorkian. And it's his, it's, it's the New York instrumental version of this charming man, which sounds like the Smiths playing, but obviously quite dubbed out. And, um, and it's just so, it's so faithful. And I think that's what, what I mean by having the band there is I, I kind of want to be quite faithful to the original vision of what a band yeah, would have aimed yeah. for. So um, to put it into specifics, you're sort of placing yourself in the imagined headspace of the band. You're trying to enter into the project in the same spirit that you imagine them to, or is it more a case of like a, a direct contact with the artist or, you know, the act that you're working with? One way of answering that would be without exactly revealing which which member of which band this was because he kind of said it to me in, in person. Okay. And it was sort of, I don't want to kind of broadcast it in some kind of gloating kind of sense, but I said to him, uh, I met him in person and I was like, Oh, you know, did you, did you like the mix? What did you think when you first heard it? Because it's quite, I mean, I, I'm kind of, you know, when I hear something about that someone's worked on, that's come from me. You know, you, whole, you get a whole array of feelings that, that that emerge, you know, like good and bad. You know, so, you know, when I kind of said, oh, you know, were you, were you into it? Because you know, I'd never actually heard anything back at the time, just like it was approved. And he said, uh, he goes, he goes, yeah, you know, uh, I wish I'd, I wish my version, like, I wish I'd done my version like you did yours. And I was just like, Wow, <laughs> that's kind and of presumably with your aims. That's about as high a compliment as you exactly. Can get, right? And yeah. the thing is, I did embody a lot of that band's parts in the track. In there, you know, added quite a lot of stuff myself. But but I try to remain as faithful as possible to it, you know. But still make it work, you know, for a dance floor and marry, you know, their kind of aesthetic their as much of what of, of their character into something that could work 
in a very instant way on, on the dance so floor. So it's like a, a, a recontextualization Absolutely. or a transposition or something. Absolutely, yeah. So I think I think in that sense, it's that, that's kind of what I always mean by, you know, if, imagining if I was there in the room with them, you know, if I was kind of, if I was directing it, you know, how, how you do it. But then again, you know, sometimes... It, it's great to have I mean that's why I really enjoy mixing other people's music you know because you can kind of do it without anyone on your shoulder and I mean that in a really nice way because then they can experience it for when it's complete you know rather than directing it towards something and you know that that's such a great that's such a great benefit to have you know when you're kind of in a room with a band you don't really want to ever say hey just give me a couple of hours and it will be you know you'll hear where I'm going with it because sometimes people can hear things and you know sometimes when people hear their own mistakes or, or or they hear something that they don't like but you've got a vision for it you know it's uh it's a it's quite an it's quite a tricky thing to kind of manage in that way so the way in which you approach um remixes um is this part of the reason that you don't favor the term remix if that makes sense because you you would always use rerub and retouch and Re rework, like, yeah, rework, yeah. I think it's, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that Puff Daddy had an album called "We Invented the Remix" or "I Invent the Remix" or something like that, and okay. I just I kind of thought <laughs> just off putting a bit off putting. So, and also um, I can't exactly answer why I I felt rework was more appropriate than than remix, but I think back then, you know, when I first started remixing, it was such an ambiguous term you know, as to what it was. So I thought if I could at least have something that's far more allotted to what I'm doing and in my own head, then I can keep that focus a lot more precise, just for myself at least. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I wanted to quickly list some of the um, acts you've worked on. Um, this is very much just no view. Um, Hot Chip, Death From Above, 1979, Justice, Claxons, Conan Moccasin, Daft Punk, New Order, Franz Ferdinand. Um, the list goes on. Um, I'm really wondering, are there ingredients that you're looking for when you're taking on a project? My whole approach in that sense has differed across the years. There was, there was a one period in time in particular where I only remixed things that I didn't like as a challenge huh. to make something that I liked. Because I, I think the kind of specific as to why you do something, I mean, for me, it kind of, it changed and it developed and you know I, there was a point where I only really worked I, I only re really re reworked people's music who from people that I actually knew so when you look at that first list of people that I reworked they're all people who I knew personally because I wasn't I, I didn't really respond that much to requests from record labels and okay. stuff like that you know um, I was very kind of i I got offered a lot of things for a lot of big money to remix bands that I didn't like, you know, and I never took it. You didn't want to be that gun for hire? Well, I just it just felt strange to me. I just didn't feel any affinity to it at all. You know, I didn't feel any affinity to it. I didn't feel any affinity to sometimes, you know, five figure sums to remix something for like a major label act that that I couldn't really stand by, you know? So that's why, you know, the first few things that I ever did, you know, it's like M Milo, which was Drop the Pressure, which was weirdly enough, uh, I, only, I only ended up remixing that because um, that wasn't originally going to be on his album. And I remember saying to him, are you going to put Drop Pressure? He gave me his album, actually, the first draft. It was had a printed, had a printed sleeve. 
And I remember looking at the track list. I was like, where's Drop the Pressure? And he was like, it's not on the album. It's the biggest uh, biggest track on the album now. <laughs> it wasn't even on the album. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what, what I'm saying. Yeah. I was like, where is it? And he, was sort of, he goes, oh, do, you, is it, do you like it? I said, I've been playing that for the last month and it's it's huge. And then I got a call off him about a week later and he said something like, uh, yeah, I think we're going to, I'm going to put Drop Pressure on the album. Then a week later, he rang again and goes, yeah, it's going to be the first single. And that's, he said, will you do a remix of it? Will you do a re-edit of it? Because obviously you kind of, so I was like, okay, that feels natural. So I kind of did that and I just made it longer because I just wanted it to last longer on the dance floor mm, because sure. it had one huge drop. So I just wanted it to have two huge drops. It was only drops. about three or four minutes long, right? Exactly. In so form, yeah. that's it. And it was literally just that selfish approach of just make it last longer and do that thing that everyone goes nuts to twice. And then after that, it was, you know, it was like DFA 1979, who I who were originally going to play a gig on my balcony, weirdly enough, because I, their A and R is one of my best friends, oh. and they were looking for interesting spaces to to play, and I had a really cool balcony in Holloway, um, but we pulled it at last minute because I was kind of I think I was annoying my neighbours enough with the amount of music that was being emitted from our from our place, so that didn't happen in the end. Um, but they asked me to do a re-edit of. Well, there's romantic rights in those Black History Month as well. They gave me a choice. I started Black History Month and I had it in my head, but I couldn't quite get it right. And so I just opened up romantic rights and I did it in about three hours. Oh, okay. And, um, and yeah, I mean, everything I did early on was just because I, I, I knew, you know, knew people, knew the bands, like the, the Chemical Brothers who, who were always really, uh, really supportive of what I was doing early on. And it kind of just went like that, right through to like Daft Punk, to Justice, who were obviously friends at that point, and you know Hot Chip, who sure. you know they were all they were all just people who you kind of knew. And um, but at the same time, you know, for every one that I took on there, there was about five offers to do something from bands that I didn't really like or whatever. And so it just just didn't feel natural. Are there any of them that stick out as being um, particularly challenging that you remember? Remember tearing yeah. your hair out over yeah. one in particular? Yeah, definitely. It was Tame Impala. Um, why don't you make up your mind? Um, because I originally, I originally was asked to do another song on the album called "Can't Even Remember What the Title Was." Oh, it was called "I Don't Really Mind," and I did a remix of it and sent it to the label, and they came back like a day later. I said, "Yep, all accepted. Great, thank you." I listened back to it and I thought it was shit. So I emailed them back and I said, I'm sorry, I can't give this in. I don't think it's strong enough. And I think it's, uh, I actually wrote them a big letter, which they used as their PR. Um, really? Yeah, I think it's probably online somewhere. So um, um, I wrote a big, them a big letter just saying, like, I'm really sorry, this this doesn't do either of us any credit, this mix. Let me go back uh, and try again. Actually, no, before that, but I did actually try another version of I Don't re you Really Mind and that didn't come out very good. So I realized that I was just in the wrong song. So I asked if I could do the one I did end up doing. Why won't you make up your mind? And I got that one. I got that one exactly how I wanted it. Um, but that did take from between the two versions. I think I did five or six different mixes until I settled on that one. And that's the one that actually opens is the first track on the compilation. Because for me, that that persistence in trying to get to somewhere that I completely believed in 
it, it, it's incredibly important to yeah, me to get sure. to that point of actually getting something that, that I love. Does that have to be in place every time it's, or, or near enough? I definitely think so. I mean, there's loads of things that I've done that I didn't hand in and I didn't take, I didn't, I didn't pick up any money for or anything like that. Oh, you just ended up having to. I just said, I'm sorry. It, yeah. I've just not got anything good enough to give you. Okay. Yeah. Loads. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it must have been pretty painful at the time, but you must, uh, you know, be glad that you made that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, these things obviously live forever now. They, they do. Yeah. And, and I, and I really, if I could give my younger self a slight, pat on the back I, I, I would do in that way you know just in that sense of you know the purpose of doing this you know you, you're doing it to pick up pick up a paycheck at the end of it or you're doing it because you want to you want to enrich yourself or other people or the band you're working for or, or anything like that you know so so that, that, that that's why I think um th that's why this is kind of important to me in that sense because you know, all of these, uh, you know, ideas and approaches that I can stick by now. And many of them were done, you know, over a decade ago. Unless you sleep at night. I can sleep at night. <laughs> Let's talk about the um, Ride album, which came out, that was last month, wasn't it? A couple, or, yeah, no, you, or, well, yeah, by the time probably people listening to this, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Like a couple of months ago, so uh, Weather Diaries. Um, so it's uh, it a big one. Uh, the band hadn't put out a record for 20 years. Um, I guess around the time they put out the last record, things were pretty crazy. Band was dis disintegrating, sort of reformed a couple of years ago. So, I guess to ask firstly, um, how did you become involved in the project? And you were the principal producer, right? Would yeah, that be kind of a yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I characterization. It, it, yeah, it, it's. Um, I mean, with regards to making the record, it was it was me and and the band in a room, in a residential studio with the in-house engineer there, and you know we recorded the whole thing in seventeen days. Wow. Okay. Which is pretty pretty uh cool i think we actually had a day left over at the end of the allotted session where we just mucked around <laughs> were, you, were you expecting to go over that a lot of time it depended really i mean to be honest with you the thing was we did a lot of we did a lot of preparation ahead again in the studio okay um and by that you know the songs were demoed so you know they the band there, there, there was there was no kind of uh, ambiguity about who was playing what or how a song worked or anything oh, like okay. that. You know, we, the band had had written a lot of music for for what the album could be, and it was a case of whittling it down to about eleven or twelve tracks, and just recording the ones that we felt were going to make the best record at that point. Yeah. So yeah. So it, it was you know there's a lot of there was a lot of talking, a lot of going back and forth on email with, you know, ideas and demos and approaches ahead of going in the studio. So by the time we went in, it was, we were totally well versed. And, you know, we had Charm Assault written, well, Charm Assault was written, recorded, you know, by the end of the day on the first day. Oh, well, okay. And Home is a Feeling on the second day and then Weather Diaries on the third day. So and then, the momentum so, was kind of Yeah, we were doing, sky high. it was great. And that's testament to, you know, the band's, um, you know how harmonious they are at this at this point and how much work they put into uh you know pre me coming into the situation you know in in in, in demo form you know so um yeah it was it was very fluid i think that's the best 
best way of putting it really were you a long-term fan of the band yeah absolutely absolutely i mean i kind so, of i mean did you you must have been implying a, a certain amount of personal personal pressure to yourself now <laughs> a little bit i mean the thing is though i mean the way i got involved was i had an email from their manager just saying uh the band were considering you know recording new music would i be interested in um working with them and of course you know the, the part of me was like completely like jumping around my seat in a sense sure, in, ex sure. in excitement um, because obviously, you know, I grew up on those records. I grew up, you know, I listened to Nowhere, Going Blank Again, like to, to death. And, and I even, I really love Black Knight Crash from the last album as well. I think it's a, it's a fantastic, to me, it always sounded like a heavy metal band covering Squeeze. And so I, I've always, I've always liked what, what they've done. Um, but I didn't want to get involved unless I felt I could actually do what needed to be done properly. You know, I didn't want to go there and just you know, be a fanboy sitting in the corner, nodding my head to everything, because that's no help to anybody. So it was, my decision was made on the strength of the demos. Mm. Uh, so when I was sent what they'd been working on, by the time I'd heard, the, I'd heard a demo of Charm Assault, a demo of Homes of Feeling, Cali, you, you know, by that point, I was just like, this is great. This is going to be great. You know, because then I, because at the core of it are, you know, good songs, you know, good good melodies, also purpose as to why they're making a record, you know, which is very important. None of it felt to me um, any different to if I was kind of working with a band on their debut record almost, you know, it had all those, it ticked all those boxes for me. How does a project like this typically get started for you? Um, you mean, I mean, the whole in terms of, of yeah, I'm just really interested in the, uh, the kind of dynamics that are at play, really, because you were mentioning uh, having discussions about the the aim and demos and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm thinking about some of the other band projects you've worked on, like Mystery Jets, um, you know, things of this nature. Um, are there sort of parallels you can draw? Is it a case of sitting down with the group and just saying, hey, what's up? What have you got? Like, what do you want to do? Shall we do this thing? Yeah, I mean, for me as a as a producer, I never I never expect to go into any situation between any band and it what they need from me be the same thing yeah okay. every single time it's different and every time it has to be different and every time the skill of what i feel skill of what personally i need in in the form of production and how i can produce people because it varies person to person like it's difficult to put producers against one another you know they're you know we do inhabit different skills and that's why some producers are a better match for some bands than others is what i believe um but every single time every, every record that i've made every album i've made i've had to be a different type of producer in there's some instances where i have you know mic'd up the drum kits and placed the microphones and done all that engineering side of what you need to be able to do when needed and record it and do everything else after it. And there's times where literally, you know, you're kind of directing things or you you have to just create that environment for capturing the best music that you can, you know? And sometimes that is just taking a step back, you know, and just coming in when you're needed, you know? Because if you've got a band, if you've got four or five people, you know, who've got this incredible harmony and chemistry, you know, you want to keep, 
that ignited rather than be in the middle, just kind of like diffusing it somewhat, you know, by kind of, sure, you know, sure. you just, just facil facilitation. It, it, it's reading the room. And you know yeah. what? It's not a million miles away from a kind of skill that you need to have as a DJ as well. You know, it's just kind of feeling what's needed and what isn't needed, you know? So sometimes, you know, you got to just come in and just find out what your purpose is in this. You know, what are you bringing to it? Uh, what's needed? where the guidance lies in what you can bring, where you don't interfere, you know, that kind of thing. And then you just got to just try and steer the ship into into the best waters that you can. So it, it varies every, every single time. How do you feel about the record now it's out there? I love it. And I love the fact that... That's great. You can say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really is. I mean, I mean I'm completely um, aware that the band have a very, very hardcore fan base. The fact that they've all kind of, I mean, I, and this is obviously a very modern thing, but a lot of them have told me on Twitter how much they, how much they love the record and how almost at times they're kind of, you know, just, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of glad that, that the band have come back and made something which, you know, still has its roots in, in, in their kind of musical DNA or their golden mm. period or whatever, and especially from their first two records. Um, but it still has some form of contemporary edge to it, or it still sounds like a relevant record in this moment. You know, that was a very important thing as well, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go into a studio and just say, oh, let's do something that sounds like Twist the Roller and let's do something that sounds like Leave Them All Behind or whatever, and just kind of just tick the boxes and chuck it back out there you know like you kind of want to make something where where like you know an 18 year old kid's going to hear it and think oh that's good what is that you know and through that potentially discover the records they made 25 years ago or something like that so the response to it's been great in that sense it's been really really great and I'm I'm really happy that they're happy you know the band's happy everyone just seems happy about it and that's it's kind of nice you know you feel a little bit like a trying to think of a mythical figure who comes in and makes everyone happier than who fucks <laughs> off <laughs> not that i'm doing that <laughs> um i was just thinking about the, the sort of um spirit and the tone of the projects you've been working on with bands and um wondering really if you would see beyond the wizard sleeve as being a uh, kind of part and parcel of the same thing you know do you guys see yourselves as being a band rather than a production duo do you feel like you're in a similar headspace when you're when you're writing music for this project yeah i mean that that was quite that was quite unique in the sense that it was all you know it, it was presented especially with the, the you know with the sleeve with the record sleeve and with the guest vocalists as a band mm. but obviously it was a million miles from that you know i mean everything on there there's only two actual samples on the record which which were replayed, I should add. Um, but everything else is all, is completely original and recorded from the bottom upwards. But, you know, manipulated and um, re, you know, edited into, you know, sounding as, as, as much like a, how a band would have made a record. Um, you know, that was kind of like a challenge in that sense. And obviously it's, it's, on one hand, I suppose, quite far away from what people might expect from me if they know me as a DJ, you know, but at the same time, 
I suppose it kind of makes perfect sense maybe mm-hmm. to another set of people. And I don't know, I'm sometimes I feel like I'm sometimes walking that tightrope in that sense between of, I mean, for me, it's just, it really is just about being creative and just staying, staying on that tightrope. I mean, I, I really feel that if I'm not being creative, I kind of feel quite weirdly empty in that way. Yeah, sure, sure. So I just have to just keep at it. Do you play any instrument? I play, I play all the instruments not very well. I mean, on, on that Beyond Wisley album, I play everything except the drums. Okay. So all the guitars, bass, What do you feel keyboards. most comfortable on? Um, guitar. It's my first instrument. I mean, to be honest with you, and this is another, you know, level of exclusive, but when I used to be in school, in my school band, rehearsing after school, you know, we'd be attempting to play ride songs. <laughs> so it's kind of... <laughs> did, you, did you tell them that? Um, no, but I probably just have done now. So, but, you know, it's like I've, you know, for me, I was always, I, I was... I was always, you know, being in a band was was the thing that I kind of was probably the thing that I probably dreamt about when I was sixteen, seventeen years old. Being and and for someone who grew up reading the Enemy and the and the Melody Maker and watching the chart show and Snub TV and Rapido and all those kind of that amazing outlet that you had for alternative guitar music between the years of like nineteen ninety to nineteen. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to cut it off at ninety four or ninety five when Britpop happened, but, you know, or anything like that. But as you know, from ninety to ninety three was just such an inspired, inspired time. You know, especially if you like guitar music, you know, because it'd just be endless the amount of incredible records that that you would end up stumbling across. You still feel inspired by that time period. I mean, yeah, because there's still a lot of records that you can still discover. Yeah at this point because there was just there was just so much there was so much music back then but yeah I mean I can still discover things from that era but I think I think it's because it was all being funneled through the music press and TV especially you know because you're not just you know you, you, it's the and it sounds comic now but the moving image you know rather than that great single shot of a band in a magazine or a paper music paper versus seeing some kind of insane, I mean, you're really seeing like the butthole surfers on TV for the first time, you know, some of their bizarre videos and stuff, you know. So like the idea of mind video expanding. in the early 90s, if not new, there was still an element of novelty connected to it. You know, people were still, um, you know, doing things with the format, it was still kind of in its, you know, not infancy, but, you know, it was still a period of like, you know, innovation, experimentation yeah. and stuff. L- limitation. As, yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, yeah. You know, these bands, you know, there'd be some bands, you know, they'd have, I suppose, relatively small budgets to do things and, but they'd be full of character, you know, and that, and, and that limitation probably, probably helped them in some way. I just wanted to come back to the idea of the uh, tightrope walk that you planted there a moment ago. Um, I think when I first became aware of your work, um, you know, it was through things like trash and like the remixes and bootlegs and stuff you were doing. And it certainly felt to me at the time as though uh, people were very ready for what you were offering up, right? Or your, or your approach. And, you know, there seemed to be a an embrace of what you were doing uh, for sure, you know, whether that was um, due to the specifics of what you're doing or, you know, there was some like broader context involved, whatever. But um, I'm wondering from your perspective, um, how easy or difficult has the tightrope walk been? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, you've made it seem quite seamless and, you know, dare I say effortless, but how's it been on your side? I think one way to answer that really goes back to a few things that might touched upon already 
I think one of my things that I'm happy about what I do is my ability to edit myself, you know? And like I said, you know, not putting certain things out or not agreeing to doing certain things maybe may have helped that illusion. I call it an illusion because it's it's your perspective on something and, you know, what the truth is 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 ambiguous in that sense, you know? Um, but I do try to do whatever I attempt to do as best as I can do. You know, that's the thing. I don't really want to do anything by half. And and I do believe that if I dip my toe into something, then I end up putting everything else, everything else into it as well. Yeah. Okay. And there's obviously a price to pay for that in how much time you can give anything. So that's my only kind of, that's my only problem is having enough time to do everything, you know, because I kind of, I'd quite happily keep going back and forth on something, but I have got better at it and I've developed skills um, in in what I feel aids any kind of creativity in that sense of, of how I approach it and um, how I use my time best in that, you know, rather than, you know, I just go into a studio and just kind of sit there and, you know, wait for something to happen or mess around waiting for something to happen. But now I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of, the work in my head first and that's been the best that's some of my best reworks have been that has literally been getting it in my head working fully and then going into the studio and spending literally four or five hours in making what's up there and it's done and I did that with the Conor Moxa mix the Metronomy mix um you know they're ones that I knew exactly what they went like before sitting down and kind of experimenting and messing around, you know, I do think that, I do think that it's kind of, it can sometimes lead to frustration if you're going to go into a situation and just, and just wait for something to happen, you know, cause I've done that and, and it, you can you beat yourself way, yeah. up a bit. Yeah. You can sometimes just get so caught up in it and think you're not that great. You know, you've got those little memes, memes or whatever they're Meme, called. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the thing, like the creative process, like this is great this is brilliant and then no this is shit and then no, actually it's that kind of thing I understand that completely yeah sure but that's that's because you're kind of like that's because you're you don't have a vision like if you know what you're working towards if you acutely know like the tone that you're going for what you want to achieve by doing something and the production side of it is is merely functional you know that's that, that's that's great. That's what songwriting is. Sure, you know? sure, and that yeah, presumably sense, so. um, gets a little easier over time once you you know your technical prowess, you know, yeah. year to year kind completely. of develops and completely. And I've I've hit so many walls, you know, I've failed so many times. I've you know done things that I've looked back and I've thought that's been a waste of a week. That's been a waste of a a month, even. You know what I mean? Um, and learnt from it. Yeah, so, say, so yeah. failure is, you know, I, I think, fa you know, failure is never a bad thing. Anyone who's listening to this as an interested, as an interest in production or songwriting or anything that involves creativity is that you just need, you know, just if you mess up, as long as you learn from it, you know why you messed up, it's likely you're not going to mess up from that mistake again. You're going to mess up from other things later on. You know, you can bet your, you can bet anything on it that you will consistently mess things up. But it's just what you learn from, you know, and you just learn not to do it again in that way. Yeah, exactly. Like, all right, took that path last time, led to nowhere. All right, let's <laughs> head in this direction. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's just literally specific things like, and it can be anything from, you know, 
it, it could be anything from um, I don't know. It, it's it's probably too ambiguous to outline in that sense, but I think as long as you just take that thing of that screwing something up is is not necessarily a terrible thing unless you can actually, you know, learn why you screwed it up. Yeah, yeah, sure. Then you, you know. So returning to this um, tightrope, um, I would probably feel quite sure in saying that the uh, basis for this uh, for this act, <laughs> maybe that's not the right word, but anyway, uh, trash. You know, okay, this, yeah. is, this is the this is the sort of platform in which you fused your um, mutual interests in guitar-driven music and electronic-driven music. You know, it's something people still love to talk about. You know, uh, I'd seen recently you'd said that people still constantly approach you and want to talk to you about it and these kinds of things. Um, but I wonder if you could uh, set the scene by just giving us a brief overview of um, how the whole thing got started. Trash began quite simply because I wanted to have an environment where I could play the records I really wanted to play without being sometimes directed as to what I could and couldn't play. And I was getting that because I was DJing in some other nightclubs where they had quite a strict kind of musical playlist. And, you know, I would kind of veer left and right and stuff and you know, it could divide people at times. It, it was times when I used to, I was kind of told quite clearly as to how, like by punters, how much they hated some stuff I'd play. Um, but it was, you know, it was all music that I liked. It was all music that I kind of believed in. And also my friends did as well. So I was also playing, you know, part of the reason I, I, I began DJing really, and this may actually put trash into some context. I started DJing because me and my friends were all going to clubs every night of the week and we were hearing the same records and me and my friends were listening to a different set of records and we wanted to hear those records in clubs. The thing is I was buying those records, I had them at home, whether they'd be on vinyl, cassette, video cassette or whatever, CD. Um, so there was one club on a Wednesday night at the gas club called Automatic, which was on Leicester Square that we went to, where I kind of vaguely knew the promoter a little bit and I just went up to him and just said, look, me and my friends are coming every week. You know, we like it here, but we just wish the music was just a little bit different. So um, I'd kind of arranged it that the next week that I, I would play like the first two hours of the, of the club. And um, obviously I'd, I had records. Um, my friends would come in and pay as normal and I'd be paid in. I got paid five drinks tickets to do it. And, you know, I just played the records that I was constantly feeding my friends by making them cassettes because I was always have you heard this song have you heard that song whatever they go no so I go I'll make your cassettes I used to make people cassettes all the time and I just realized that DJing was literally an extension of making cassettes for people <laughs> but in that in that moment plus on a big on a big you know system so I did it the first week and the guy obviously noticed that people had come to hear that and enjoyed it so he invited back the week after you know so I was going there with with my record collection, which did consist of vinyl, CD, cassette and video cassettes. I didn't, I only had some songs on video because I'd taped it off TV and had a video wall there. So I wired up the, the, the VCR into the mixing desk and had the cue point ready on the number. So I'd go, right, that's all. And it come on the video wall. So it's synced up to the video wall and playing through the PA. And you get that weird tape effect yeah, yeah, on VHS yeah, sure. and stuff. So, um, uh, so that was kind of, he just said, oh, do you want to come back next week? So I was like, yeah, sure. So I came back next week and about, you know, 
two months later, I was like a regular fixture and playing a bit later on because more people were coming to the club. More people were kind of connecting with the music as well, I think, because around then, you know, grunge was was in full flow and, you know, no disrespect to them, but, you know, we're kind of sick of hearing Even Flow by Pearl Jam, you know, sometimes twice a night or whatever. And we wanted to hear, you know, Verve B-sides or whatever, you know. So, so that kind of, that went from there. And other clubs just started saying, oh, do you want to come and play here? Do you want to come and play there? And then before I knew it, I was kind of DJing most nights of the week. Because of that, I ended up, I ended up as a DJ, I suppose, you know, but my intention wasn't to be a DJ ever in that sense. You know, I just, I literally wanted to just go and I suppose, I suppose just be in control of the music. I suppose like you would do at a party. So through that, obviously what I was able to play in the, in the, in the context of indie clubs, in, in the space of indie clubs, was a little narrower than what I wanted to play. So I had the opportunity to to start a night on a Monday, which was born from the ashes of a club called Going Underground, which was there on a Monday already. The the, the promoter on that night, a guy called Glyn, um, you know, wanted to just kind of pack it up and didn't want to do it anymore. Um, and it was at the original Plastic People on Oxford Street. And uh, Ade, who... who uh, who ran plastic people just like during the Mondays. And I thought, yeah, why not? You know, sort of just, it's complete blank canvas. So it started like that, that simple, that simply. And it was, it was just, you know, like there was absolutely no one else to answer to or anything. I mean, it just meant though, the only major downside of it was I then had to become a club promoter, which I never, I had no idea what to do. You know, so I remember finding, um, I remember going to my girlfriend's house and she had a word processor. So I made a flyer on a word processor, <laughs> then like photocopied them four on a sheet and then cut them up and, you know, started dishing those out. And, you know, 60 people came on the first night. Then on the second night, I think 65 people came and then it just kind of built because I think people were just connecting to whatever was happening there. And plastic, it ran at Plastic People for like a year and a half until Plastic People closed and obviously then relocated to Shoreditch. So they moved to the Annex and that was, that held like 350 people. That was quite intimidating at that point because how are we going to fill that place up? Or, you know, we were getting 200 people a night at Plastic People, but you know, this is quite as big. Up, yeah. It's a big step up, especially for like, you know, a Monday night as well. But yeah, I think, I think like 400 people came on the first night. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Then like, you know, the face started taking notice and they named it as their like UK club of the year. You know, I think the thing was stylistically trash really embodied or, or it had a playlist and it had, it, it, it supported music from bands with quite a lot of character, I think, you know, and obviously, you know, without kind of naming too many names and stuff, but you know bands from like a glam rock era that kind of I think encouraged people to just dress their best you know and we really encourage people just to make Monday feel like like the night of the week they would go out mm. because there were less I mean on the weekends you know when we'd go out to clubs in the West End which was where like the a lot of the alternative clubs were you know a lot of there'd be a lot of kind of idiots out on Friday and Saturday night 
especially if you kind of dressed a little bit odd. It was a little bit like a, a bit like that pulp song, Miss Shapes, you know, where <laughs> it was a little like that. But, um, you know, it, Monday just became a very, you know, and this might sound like a bit of a kind of modern kind of buzzword and stuff, but it felt very safe for a lot of people, you know, and that was, and that was, again, you know, embodied by the diversity of the people that came to Trash. You know, it was very, very mixed, like sexuality wise, in race or anything. It was it was really, really diverse. And I think that's the greatest credit that I can give the club in that way. You know, regardless of any, of any kind of musical element or anything, it felt like there was, you know, people would come and, you know, talk to me about it and they would always comment on that, you know. And I think because of that, you know, the musical elements that we embodied that you know it, it was music that was very sacred to a lot of people you know I, I think we kind of we we invited those people who 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 felt like they needed to be somewhere somewhere safe and sacred in that sense so you mentioned uh for one the idea of dressing up and then you mentioned the uh diversity of the crowd as being something that you were um you know very proud of um was this or were these the reasons that you had the door policy that you did absolutely yeah because um because it got popular you know we kind of really wanted to make sure that the people who who had it feel like their home continued to feel that rather than just get bigger and take more money you know I mean knowing at the time you know I, I know that we could have we could have if we wanted to you know taken the money on it you know put the price up and got more people through I mean there was a scope to do that but we would turn away as many people as we would have inside the club mm. you know and and the dress code thing it was it was pretty flimsy in, in a way you know it wasn't it was based mainly on kind of keeping sometimes you know loutish drunken people out because they would sometimes see a big queue join it or whatever but yeah, I've, sure. i i mean you got to understand that i don't mean to kind of offend anyone when i say this or kind of generalize on people you know each week was taken as it came you know and you can only deal with the situation that you have in front of you at that one time but there were times when i was throwing people at myself because they'd be mocking you know some uh, some guy who'd be wearing a dress and in makeup in the club and they'd be taking a piss and I didn't want that under my roof so I'd throw them out myself yeah, yeah you yeah. know so I'd throw out the perpetrator not the person yeah, yeah, sure, <laughs> just sure, to be yeah, clear, yeah, that's clear. Um, just <laughs> just uh, be clear on that but you know there'd be sort of you know I just wanted it to feel as homely to I mean in a way I mean for me personally you know that's kind of what I wanted from a club really you know I, that's what I wanted from trash that's what I and I wanted to, when I say I, I speak on behalf of everyone else who was involved with the club as well, because everyone was on the same page. And that, that also, I think, is testament to the diversity of the people who were part of the club, whether or not they were just DJing or they're working on the door or even on the bar or the management. You know, there was a real, there was a really strong kinship between people there. You know, I really can't, I've never felt it anywhere else, especially at the end. I mean, it, primarily at the end you know there was I mean the annex and plastic people were, were, were great eras but when we got to the end you know there was just something there was something truly truly special about it you know and I completely understand how the end came from you know 
from whatever era it began in the 90s and why it became the, the kind of institution that it did. What year you did know? you get started at the end? Uh, I think it was 99, 99 or 2000. And you got to remember back then, no alternative clubs were in venues like that. You know, hearing any of those records come out of a sound system like that just did not exist at all, you know? So for me, I was I was not really even going to continue trash after the annex unless it could go to somewhere that was, you know, as good as the annex or a step up. You know, there was, there was countless options to go to venues that were not as good as the annex. The annex was quite a nice little venue, but um, but moving to the end really just was like that was that was you know that was a big thing, and and in a sense that's also that gave us the platform to do what we did there as well, you know, to put those bands on how we could and give them all good gigs, you know, you know, these bands could play for a great PA system and with great lights and there'd be security on the door who, who were good security, you know, you go to indie clubs. I mean, I, 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 I've fallen foul of security guards in other venues myself personally, you know, but I knew these guys were totally, they completely understood our crowd. That's important, such an right? important thing, such yeah. an important thing. Um, I was interested um, in the fact that you said that, um, or just to give it some um, slightly deeper context, you were booking bands and pushing mainly guitar-based music for the party's first, I don't know, several years. And you'd said that the uh, Felix the Housecat records, um, Silver yeah. Screen Shower Scene, was kind of a bit of a pivotal moment for you. Definitely, yeah. Um, so... I I wasn't going to the party or anything around that time, but um, listening to that record, I also had a vague sense uh, just in my youth that this was kind of like an important record for reasons I couldn't really put my finger on. Yeah, yeah. But I was wondering uh, from your perspective why it was so key. What, what was it about that record in particular? Um, I think it's just, it was a record that, I mean, it's quite a lo-fi record. It's really simple but it's just full of so much character and that character i think is the is links it with a lot of the alternative records that we would have been playing around that time or beforehand you know it's just i mean dance music one of its strengths you know as well as one of its downsides is that it can be quite faceless and transparent no i don't think anyone's going to really argue against that you know that sense it has a functionality to it Sometimes when you know when you come across these dance records, which are just full of you know, so much character and charm, mm. you know they they transcend the fact that that's what they are, you know, and that's I think that's a perfect example of that record, and that was what was happening, especially with a lot of electric electronic music back then. It was, you know, its its musical DNA was born out of you know the you know what I feel is is its purest form, you know, in in the disco era. You know, um, rather than it being something that's latter and more techno or sparser. I know what you're sense. saying. Yeah. yeah, for sure. You know, you're considering music with um, vocals and, and attention to aesthetics and, you know, people are thinking about the way they're dressing and stuff. And um, I guess just on a simple level, it, it's uh, painting a much more complete picture of, you know, who this person is and yeah. what they're trying to put across, you know? Yeah, and I think it's a lot of it. It's how much of yourself you see in these records as well and how much of yourself you hear in these records, you know? 
because that's an important thing and that that's what we are all fundamentally doing in that sense you know what we present and what we kind of play you know you you know like i suppose it's like the bowie lyric you know i'm a dj i am what i play you know so <laughs> it's, it's quite smart he's a smart guy isn't he? Um, I was speaking to some people about the fact that I was uh, talking to you and, um, you know, just uh, having discussions with people um, who, who went to trash. And we kind of arrived on this idea that there couldn't be a club night like trash at this moment in time. That might be a totally misguided statement. Um, I'd also noticed um, in, I think it was a Guardian interview that someone had said to you, um, yeah, you know, we really miss a club. We don't feel like anything's ever filled the void. And I just wonder what your take on that is really, you know, do you, do you think that something could come up that had the spirit of, of trash or, you know, I mean, connected to it? It's, it's very flattering on one hand to hear that, but also quite upsetting to hear that. But I would say that there's a few elements as to why it may be difficult for something like that to happen again. One, the size of venues that are available to people in order to, st I mean, we started in a 200 capacity venue, you know, um, you know, we need small venues in order for people to go in and to take the risk on, to have the ambition to, to kind of do something in that sense. Two, um, the concept of the resident DJ I think is another thing, you know, like it was trash was really built around the residents, you know, and the guests came in later on and then the guests complimented what we were doing naturally, you know, cause we were booking, we only booked people whose records we played, you know, we only invited people to come along, you know, we, that's how Phoenix house cut came about. It's just like, we're playing your record to death. You know, I mean, when I said to the end, Phoenix house cut is going to come and play some records and his, his, and told him how much you know we were able to pay him because obviously we were doing all these things on a budget. They couldn't they couldn't believe it. You know, the time when even like when Junior Sanchez came down with Jacques Leconte to play records, they were like, "You do know how much Junior Sanchez would be getting if it was here on a Saturday?" And he's just there like having fun playing. You know, but this is all stuff because it was all happening very, very, very naturally in that sense. But going back to what you're saying, um, could it happen again? You know, I the concept of a weekly club. Um, feels quite alien at this moment. And I don't know if that's got anything to do with the fact of, you know, what we need at that point in our lives. And I'm talking about being from 18 to perhaps 26 years old and how we feel a kinship or a connection to other people. You know, that's the big thing that I think Trash offered people. It put a lot of people who had a lot in common under the same roof. Now, I don't want to say anything as cheap as to say maybe social media has replaced that or anything like that, but I don't know because I'm not, I'm not that age and I'm not in that situation. I'd like to know. Yeah. I'd like to know what is filling that gap for people of that age, you know, where they feel a kind of a real strong connection. Maybe there are clubs out there that maybe they're just not as, or maybe it's bars. I, I really don't know. I, I really don't know what it could be, but then I'd, at the same time, I can own, I only know what I knew back then, you know, and I only acted on what I had to act on at that point. And I only worked with what I could work with, you know, like trash was run in a corner of my, I, I lived in a bed sit in Tufnell Park in the corner of my room. I had a PC and a fax machine with a phone built in and that was it. And that's how it was done. You know, there were moments where like trash really collided with mainstream 
like other mainstream entities out there, some of which we had a kind of issue with as okay. such, you know, some very, very big people like kind of trying to intimidate us, you know, and I'd be on the phone in my bed <laughs> next to my fax machine sitting on the floor talking to this arsehole from so-and-so, you know, trying to bully us and it'd be like... Are you talking about like rival promoters or can you say an outline? No, I can't. I can say, okay. it's, just, it's just interesting like thinking about like, how something of that nature, something so small and so, you know, so in a way like humble in its own way, like we really didn't want to interfere in other people's world. You know, we knew where we, we, we knew what we were doing, kind of knew what our limitation was in that sense, you know, and we didn't want to be bigger. You know, Trash never went on tour. You know, Trash never released, like, I mean, we, we put a companion out, a Trash companion, but the word companion is gives it enough of an essence as to what it was rather than a compilation. It wasn't something that was presented to capitalize or to bring people through the door, you know? That was never the objective on it. So we had to really, we were happy where we were and we just wanted everyone just to have a good time. Sounds really cheesy, but but we just wanted we just wanted to just discover great music, present great music, and everyone have a great time. Do you miss it? I miss, yeah, I miss elements of it definitely, but it was a lot of work, you know, in that kind of you know when something would not go exactly to plan, you had to kind of figure out why, and then you had to fix it you know so there's that element of it that's the promoter side the side that i didn't really ever want to be and after trash i promoted nothing else like mm. as, soon as i finished trash that was it you know there was no there was no club empire being born out of out of that experience or anything like that it was just literally it was promoting trash was was merely done so it could exist you know um, I read that you missed one Monday in 10 years. Well, that was my honeymoon, yeah. That was it. It's an unbelievable record, I have to say. <laughs> I know, I know. It was, uh, and yeah, Paul Epworth filled in for me that night. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about another of the uh, you know, institutions you became involved with, uh, Bugged Out. Um, it felt like uh, Bugged Out was pretty important in kind of, let's say, bridging the gap, you know, from your kind of um, you know, more indie and guitar driven background into like the more pure dance music world. Um, how did you become involved with the party so heavily? You know, what was it about what they were doing? I remember basically Jockey Slut took an interest in what was in it trash. And Jono in particular, Jono Burgess. And he uh, he was someone who I'd kind of, I, I just thought he had a really friendly face, you know, so I'd always go up and say hi to him, you know, I'd see him about, and he was always super, super friendly and, and funny and witty and and just struck it off with him immediately. And around that time, you know, there'd be, there was somewhere to go every single night and much of the kind of places that I was going to outside of, the alternative circle because this is the one thing at the same time that trash was happening my actual night out that I would afford myself to kind of go out with a lot of my friends outside of the alternative sphere of clubs would be to bugged out and the boutique boutique and bugged out especially at fabric around that time so um so I kind of got to know Jono a bit and there'd be kind of a few kind of after parties here or there or whatever where he'd end up and Ended up at his house a few times and he had, he had a couple of decks set up 
and he had his record collection. I'd be going through his record collection, going, oh, this is a great record, this is great. And it'd be a lot of, you know, like kind of pretty, you know, left of centre electronic stuff. Um, and I think it was probably quite surprised as to a lot of the stuff that I was aware of. Um, but I think he kind of, you know, he, he kind of knew a bit, but, but going back through the 90s and stuff, because obviously all through, through the 90s, I was constantly listening to electronic music at the same time as being into you know, guitar music. So we'd always have, we'd always be like talking about it. I'd be playing records and you know, mixing them, whatever on his decks or whatever. So I think um, there came an opportunity. Well, what happened was David Holmes mi missed his flight back from Amsterdam and it was meant to be playing in room through at Fabric. But there was a room there that he, he had called the 18th hole, I think. And Jono like rang me up at the 11th hour, just like, David Holmes can't make it. Can you, can you fill in and room free? And I was going there that night anyway. So I thought, yeah, well, can I get my friends on the guest list as well? <laughs> so I was like, yeah, of course can. So I was like, great. So I told my friends, I've got, I got a gig at Fabric. They couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I kind of, I went I went, and the room was just absolutely like rammed all, all the way through. And Jono just came up and must have liked what I was playing and just kind of just said, dude, you fancy being a resident for Bucktown <laughs> halfway through my set? So, um... I was like, yeah, sure, you know, why not? not, not really kind of thinking it, what it meant, you know, in that sense. Cause I just, I, I mean, I really liked Bugged Out, I really liked Jono, and I, and I liked everything about what they were doing and, and the atmosphere in the club. And and then they started taking me up and down the country. I was playing Liverpool, Manchester, um, you know, Birmingham, you know, all over the UK. And... It might be a bit of a cliche to say, but you know, the further north we were going, the wilder the clubs were, you know. So I was I was absolutely loving like playing places like Liverpool, playing especially, you know, a bit later down, playing, you know, the the annex at Cream, which was a mind blowing experience for me. It's just the way that that room was set out. And and before that I might have been a bit of a kind of, you know, I might have maybe only have recognised Cream as being like this kind of super club, very huge global brand and maybe kind of and I apologize for saying this maybe sneering at it slightly you know as to how big a thing it mm, kind of become sure. but playing in that room and knowing that cream began in that room I completely understood it I understood how it could become big I understood what made it special and that completely changed my perception on all of that in that moment you know so all these incredible things I was kind of experiencing outside of my kind of safety net of of trash and this kind of vaguely trendy thing that's happening in London and going yeah, sure. up all around the country and experiencing these different crowds, playing different records as well. I mean, I never played the sets that I played at Trash outside of Trash. So I was playing a complete different set of records. So what was happening was that um, I, I joined Decked Out, um, which was, which obviously is uh, affiliated to Bugged Out, their agency, and who I'm still with. I was kind of, I, I became these, this kind of like these two separate DJs, you know, one where I had a complete separate record set of records for Mondays, and then other records for the weekend for Fridays and Saturdays. So that was really, that was a really interesting period as well. So that literally felt like two separate people in that way. Uh, so how would you define yourself now with what you just said in mind? Um, in a sense, I suppose last year when the loads of gigs would be on the wizard sleeve, that parallel was there again because playing just, you know, kind of primarily records made from the 60s and 70s. And with that 
comes the challenge of mixing those records together, which is obviously they're not hmm. a million miles away from mixing four four dance records. But that that from when I did that again, that really kind of reignited that part of my brain, which I felt with trash. You know, we had to you had to memorize how how records worked you know how they sped up and slowed down across there and I'll, I'll be honest with you you know it's a little bit different now because obviously the machines that we use are different and on the new cdjs obviously you've got bpm readers you can see waveforms all those yeah, kind of things yeah, so sure. it's different but back in trash it was none of that i was doing it all on vinyl as well you know so um uh i think you know now that side of my brain definitely informs the other side and I think the spirit of of those records informs what I like about electronic music and that's always been the case I think <laughs> 